Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Bob. I am alcoholic. It's only through the grace of a God that I was afraid to believe in, that I've accessed and maintained in my life through a process outlined in a book titled Alcoholics Anonymous. The ability to remain reasonably sponsorable and a persistent and consistent effort in our primary purpose of trying to forget ourselves and devote our lives to helping others and consequently I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion altering medication since October 31st, 1978. And that's the miracle in my life. Um, I want to welcome anybody that's new, especially the guys that came up and got the chips for being brand new. Wow. Amazing. It's the only organization on the planet that'll give you an, an applause and a little gift for burning your life to the ground recently. I you won't get that at the PTA, I'll tell you that. Uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is a little different here if you're new. Uh, if you're new and you're like me, you've probably tried a bunch of stuff. I mean, by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd, I primal screamed. I, be, I would rational emotive therapy, gestalt therapy. I, I became, I worked in the field for a while. I did transcendental meditation. I did uh, SGI Buddhism. I, oh my God, if it came up on the radar and it looked like it might help me, I took a run at it because God knows I need something. As the alcohol, as the effect of the alcohol and combinations of alcohol and drugs started to bleed out and I couldn't get high right anymore, I became more and more desperate. And little did I know that Alcoholics Anonymous would have everything I needed here that I couldn't find there. A is the only organization I know of where you come in a, because of our second tradition, you come in a big shot and you work your way up to servant. Uh, <laughs> Everywhere else is the other way around. You, you sweep the floor for a while, someday you're manager. AA, it's the other way. It's opposite. Because we're not, this is not a self-help program. I know a lot of people try to imagine that it is, but it's really a program of self-abandonment and service, which is not good for a guy like me. I'm a me-first you know, all that altruistic crap, it's like, yeah, 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 that's great, all right, that's fine for you. What, 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 what about me? What about me? You know, I was like the me guy, me, what about me? And, and you kept take, pushing me to take actions as if, I, as if I wasn't important. Well, how could that be? I'm all I think about. I mean, and yet I, I became desperate enough to take your actions and my life started to change. I don't know why I'm alcoholic. My mother and father weren't alcoholic. I did have alcoholics in my family. I had some uncles that were, they were just obnoxious, pathetic people. Everybody knew they were alcoholics. Everybody in the family talked crap about them. And I was hell-bent not to be like that. When it says in the beginning of chapter 3, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. Oh, yeah. I don't want to be an alcoholic. Because I know alcoholics, and they're pathetic and obnoxious. And I don't know. Oh, I resented them. I'm not going to be an alcoholic. I'll be anything other than an alcoholic. I'll be a drug addict. 
There was a, I was a wannabe rock star. There were rock stars that were professed drug addicts, people I looked up to. I'll be a drug addict. I never looked up to anyone that wet their pants on a regular basis. <laughs> I'll be a mental health case, because if you're a mental health case, you get pills and sympathy. I like both of those. I'm signing up, man. Now, you know what I'm saying? But I don't want to be an alcoholic. And guys like me die because... We want to hold on to the idea that my case is different. And I remember having therapists and people in AA, and, and, and they'd say, you know, they would tell me they understood me, but I knew inside myself, you don't really understand how I feel. And no, I didn't think anyone ever did. And I had, I'd had those feelings to some degree before I ever picked up a drink. There was something wrong with me before I ever found alcohol. I, as a kid, I, 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 were, I was afraid a lot. I never felt like I fit, not really. I remember in grade school, I, I never seemed to, to feel like the other kids looked. They looked connected and plugged in and like they, they got something I don't get. I, could never, I never felt like they looked. I'm afraid a lot. I don't feel like I fit. There's something wrong with me. I don't know what it is. So I kept it in the shade. I kept it a secret. And I developed a, a facade. I became the pretend guy. The guy who pretended he fit. The guy who pretended he wasn't afraid. The guy who pretended he's okay. I'm all front, no back. And there's a phoniness in me, and I know it. And sometimes I... I get this anxiety that somebody's going to see through me and see how wrong I really am. Now, if you'd asked me to explain how I was wrong, I couldn't explain it. I just knew, felt it with everything in me that I ain't right. And so uh, I pretended I was okay. And I'll tell you, by the time I found alcohol, I was almost 13 years old. And I'm hanging around a bunch of older kids. And I God, I wanted to fit with these kids. These were the kids that were always in trouble. These were the kids that when they walked into a junior high dance or a, down the hall, the other kids got out of the way. These are the kids in and out of juvie. These kids had some kind of power. And when you're the guy that's secretly afraid a lot, that's a program of attraction. I'd rather be someone making people afraid than the guy who's afraid all the time. So I wanted to fit with them, thinking, thinking maybe if I fit with them, I'd eventually feel the way they seem to be. But you know how that is. You know, you can't do enough. I'm always coming from behind. I'm always still me. No matter how phony up I get it on the outside. And we broke into a house one day, a little burglary in the town I lived in, stole some whiskey. And it was the first time that this sickness of my being was touched by alcohol. And little did I know it was going to be an event that would change the course of my life. But it did something to me that was so spectacular. It was as if it was the first time in my life I felt free. I could come out and play. I, I didn't have to pretend I was okay. I was okay. I didn't have to pretend I fit. I mean, after, after about this much whiskey fit... I was their freaking leader, for God's sakes. You know what I mean? I, was, I went from subhuman to superhuman, just like that. It was amazing. I loved the effect of alcohol. I loved being able to come out and talk to people and be funny and, and talk to girls. I could go to dances and ask girls to dance and talk to girls. I couldn't do that sober. 
I, I don't want to be crude, but I, I, I think if it wasn't for alcohol, I, I might very well be celibate to this day. I mean, I, I don't know that I ever could have hooked that up because I was just too afraid and self-conscious. Alcohol did for me what I needed to have done. And I remember the, that I couldn't have put any of that into words. But I remember the feeling and the thought was, oh my God, I want to feel like this as, as often as I can. And I tried. Well, I get in a lot of trouble. I don't know that I have alcoholism. I got that definitive characteristic that only occurs in people with alcoholism. That when I start to drink, as the effect of the alcohol hits me, I break out in this irresistible yearning for more. I've always had that. I can't tell you one instance in all the years that I partied where maybe I was in some guy's basement doing snorting lines, smoking a little crap, drinking some wine, been at the bar with my buddies doing shots and beers, shooting pool like we used to like to do. And after about an hour getting high, have some guy say, hey, Bob, can I, I buy you another one? I've never known the experience of standing there looking at him and thinking to myself, no, this is good, thanks. I, I, it's always more. More of what? Well, what do you got? I, I was the guy, if I was at your house and we were drinking and you ran out and there's nothing around, I'll go to your bathroom and go through your medicine cabinet because I need more because the allergy's in motion, right? I need more. I don't care more. of what. I just need more. And I just go into medicine cabinet, just take whatever I saw there. I just sometimes I'd I'd take stuff and make me be I'd be up for a day and a half talking about the same stuff over and over again. Blah, 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 change the world, we're gonna change the world, that's what we're gonna do. You know, just be crazy. Just uh, sometimes I'd take stuff and my legs would turn to rubber and I'd be falling all over the place. I one time I got really regular. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I eat I all the pills out of some wheel one time, found out there's no chance I'll be pregnant in my lifetime. Uh, why am I doing that? Is it because I'm, I'm a pill head? I'm doing it because I have alcoholism, and when I started to drink, it set something in motion that demanded attention, that more. It's almost as if some vacuum opens up in me that you can never fill. I never could get satisfied. And when you can't get enough... You're almost doomed to have too much. And I'm in trouble a lot because the guys, I, I party with some guys and they like to get drunk, but drunk ain't enough for me. I've never been in my whole life ever been drunk and go, oh, I'm drunk. I better go home. It's, it's, it, I ain't done. I can't find my freaking off switch. You know what I mean? I got guys that they'll get right up to the edge of the abyss where it's about to get bizarre and they'll go, oh, I'm going home. I, I get to that same point and I'm getting excited, you know, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> because I, I can't, I can't get enough. And well, almost 16 years old I'm with my parents standing before a juvenile court judge, my third time in front of that judge. I don't know how you could be not even 16 years old and be in that kind of trouble, but I was already in a lot of trouble. And my mother and father loved me and they would have done any, anything to help me. And they, was the first time I ever got sent away for this disease. And if you would have put me on a lie detector in that court, in that chambers, in that judge's chambers, and you would have said, Bob, is this alcoholism? Is that why you're in this trouble? Because you drink, isn't it, Bob? Is it alcoholism? I said, no, it's not alcoholism. It's snitches is what it is. It's snitches. That's why I'm here. Not alcoholism. 
but it was alcoholism. Because when I go out to party, I just, I, I get drunk, drunk, drunk. There's some stuff seems like a good idea. It's not a good idea. You know what I mean? But it seems like it at the time. And uh, so I get sent away this place and I'm not even there very long. And I got, I met these guys, a little older guys and seemed to, they seemed to be hip, had something going on. And, uh, they introduced me to drugs. Well, I got to tell you something. I'm an alcoholic. Alcoholics should not do drugs. It's bad. I do them alcoholically, right? And I went through three or four years of this insanity because I'm in so much trouble from drinking. Now, I can't take it off the table. I just got to try to control and enjoy this thing somehow. And this seemed like a good way to go. But there's a friend of mine who's a songwriter, and he wrote a song. And one of the lines in the song is, you can get what's second best. You just can't get enough. And I was that way with drugs. I could never get enough. I was driven. I could, I'm trying to reproduce the effect of a pint of 151 rum when I was like 14 years old. That magical magic. And I can't get enough. Well, no time. I went from smoking a little reefer and doing some diet pills and a little bit of LSD once in a while. To, next thing I know, I, I would have never believed this possible. Next thing I know, I'm shooting meth. But I don't do it like people do it. I do it like a crazy person. I had old heads that had been doing it for years saying things to me like, hey, kid, you better cool it. I remember one time I was with my a couple of friends of mine, JJ, Rebel, and myself, and this other buddy of ours broke into a hospital pharmacy and just came away with a box full of stuff. I mean, it was, I, we don't even know half the stuff is. And, well, I remember it, there was bottles of adrenaline. There was a, 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 had a government seal on it. Merrick pharmaceutical cocaine and disoxin, which is a type of methadrine. And my one friend said, what would happen if we mixed all of those together? <laughs> and I got excited. I thought, oh, yeah. Because what I was doing was not enough. And so we, we we're going to mix it all together. So Rebel goes first. He hits it up. And he throws up across the room. His eyes roll back on his head. He falls out of the chair. He's flopping around on the ground like a fish out of water. And JJ and I look at each other and go, a little bit less. This will be really good. <laughs> well, that didn't turn out well. Um, and then I, a guy, I, I turned myself into some kind of, through stimulants, I turned myself into some kind of paranoid schizophrenic. I became the guy that if you left me alone in your car, you went in to get cigarettes. By the time he came back, I'm trying to dismantle your dashboard looking for cameras and microphones, you know, because I'm nuts. And a guy came along and turned me on to something. And I didn't even know what it was. But when the throwing up stopped, all the spinning in my head just went, <sighs> introduced me to heroin. But I'm an alcoholic. Alcoholics should not do drugs. It's bad. And I took that to the wall and then eventually full circle back to alcohol. Um, because all I really wanted is I, all I really, really wanted was I wanted to be able to enjoy my drinking the way I did in the early days and to control it. Not completely. I mean, I know there's going to be a price, but I, my delusion is that I can keep the price down to something reasonable, right? But I'm a full-blown alcoholic, man. I'm, I'm a chronic, and, and I, I, I drink. I get in more and more trouble. God, I, I started losing jobs and getting arrested more. I don't get arrested for anything macho. I get, like, 
peeing behind a building, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, just like pathetic little stuff. Uh, oh, God. It's horrible. I, I thought, I fancied myself a gangster. The police told me I was a public nuisance. Um, I'm a blackout drinker. Almost every time I drink, because I can't stop, I'm a blackout. Any blackout drinkers in here? Oh, yeah. Hard going to through life when other people know more about you than you do, isn't it? It's really very difficult. I, and if you're like me, I never did anything good in a blackout. No one ever came up to me the next day and said, Oh, Bob, you were so helpful last night. <laughs> you peed in our kitchen. You threw up my living room, you sideswiped my car, you hit on my wife, you stole my stash, you passed out on my front lawn, the absolute worst one. Some guy cornered me, I was sick, had the shakes, I need that bottle of wine, bad. Gets between me and that state store, and he says, you know, you told everybody last night you beat Bruce Lee in a karate match. <laughs> oh, just, just shoot me, right? And, and so what's happening is it's like a perpetual motion machine. Now I'm starting to need to drink over my drinking because I drink and I do a lot of disgusting, shameful, embarrassing, horrible stuff, and I can't live with it, and it just fuels the fires of my alcoholism. And I don't know what's wrong with me. And uh, in the mid-'70s, as a young kid... Uh, I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous before I was old enough to take a legal drink. I was probably 19, maybe, maybe 20, probably 20, maybe. And I, I didn't want to get sober. I just, I, this was a foxhole for me. This was a place you came when you're in a lot of trouble just to, to hole up for a little while so you can get your act together and go back out there and rock and roll. That's what AA was for me. I couldn't put all my chips in the pot here. Because I, I am not an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. See, I still have hope. The hope that someday, some way, I'm going to find a way to control and enjoy that deal. I don't want to give it up. I don't want to give up the ghost of the party. Because I'll tell you the why. Because without it, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And I know it. Because I get sober over and over again, and I go out in that world, and I, I, I'm i depressed most of the time. I, I worry about crazy stuff. I can't shut this down sober. And it just drives me crazy all the time. This chat is talking to me about crazy. I can't, you think, you go, go to an Amy to get some peace. Oh, no, not me. I walk into the meeting and my head starts, where am I going to sit? Well, I'll sit over there. No, those people think you're going to like them or something. No, you can't sit over there. Well, they saw you looking over there. What are you going to do now? I'll have to sit over there. Well, those people are going to think something. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. So I don't, I'll just, I'd be standing in the back of the room like this, just vibrating by the, you know, <laughs> right, just waiting for the guy to get out of here, but they won't. The van don't leave until 10 minutes after the, the meeting. You know, I'm in the recovery buggy from the place, you know. <laughs> oh, I used to love that. Oh, back in Pennsylvania, if you were new, they would want you to stand up and be recognized by a crowd full of people. This is not a time when I want to be recognized. <laughs> 
This is not, I, I've never came to AA on a, a catching the high wave. I, it's never like that. It's all, I'm always ashamed of myself. You want me to stand up and be recognized? Oh, God. And, and you know, I, I, I had a lot of psychiatry and a lot of, my mother was a therapist and a lot of therapy and I even worked in the field for, actually, you know, I was, I, I was, we were talking about this a little bit earlier uh, this afternoon. I was actually a very good therapist right up until the day they fired me for being drunk in the alcohol and drug clinic. <laughs> True story. And why would I be, why would I want to be a counselor? Why would I want to do that? Because I've always had this delusion that I'll find power in knowledge. And I'll tell you what I've discovered. There is no power in knowledge. It talks about that in the book. Matter of fact, if knowledge is anything, it's often for people like myself, fodder for my ego. I'll puff myself up on the knowledge into thinking I'm something I'm not. Or I got this. And, and, and I, rem I remember I'd been in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, in and out of treatment centers for a couple of years, and I don't think I'm an alcoholic. And I was sitting in a meeting probably 1975 or 76, and I heard a woman share her experience at a dinner party and how the phenomenon of craving worked, and I sat there and I got it. I mean, I got it. I'm that guy. Oh, my God, that's alcoholism. When you start, you can't stop. Because I, I all of a sudden I could look at my whole life. I was always that way. I couldn't, I never stopped. I never was satisfied. If you're an alcoholic of my type, you pick up a drink. It's like having sex with a gorilla. You ain't done till the gorilla's done. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can tell yourself all night long, I'm just going to pet the gorilla. Don't pet the gorilla. It's a bad deal, man. Don't pet the gorilla. So, but I get that. Okay, so I get that. I really know that. So I think that now armed with this knowledge, gut level knowledge, I'm, I got that thing. I can't take the first one coupled with a sincere desire to turn my life around because I had that because, my God, I, I'm, I'm dying here. I'm, I'm in and out of halfway houses and missions. Nobody will have nothing to do with me no more. There's guys I went to high school with and own homes and stuff. I understand. I get it. I get it. And so I thought that now that I, I really, really have made up my mind to not drink and I mean it, coupled with the knowledge that I had that thing, I thought I was out of the woods. Little did I know I would enter into the most horrific, painful years of my life that would eventually bring me in 1978 to, to trying to be in such hopelessness and internal emotional anguish that I tried to kill myself to get out of the pain and out of the self-loathing and the disgust. If you had told me the year before that I was eventually this disease would drive me to try to take my own life, I'd have laughed at you. I thought that's for weak people. I didn't. I had no comprehension of what I was up against here and the progressive nature of this disease. And it really is progressive. We were talking about this earlier. You know, I've been sober uh, over coming up. Well, over thirty-seven and a half years, coming up on thirty-eight if I make it to October. And I've watched a lot of people come into AA. Stay sober for 10, 15 years and go out. Now, I 12-stepped I them. I know exactly where they were at when they got sober. They don't pick up where they left off. 
if they picked up where they left off, they'd have a shot at coming back. What happens is they come back and they don't understand that the disease is upped the ante here significantly. And they're trying to work the program that gave them the 10 years and it is not enough. And they spin into this relapsing over and over and over again until they eventually either die or take their own life. They have no idea. And here's the sad part. They're not bad people. They're not stupid people. Alcoholism is the only disease I know of that uses your own mind against you. There's a line in our book that says the alcoholic's problem lies mainly in his mind. And I don't think they see what's going on. I don't think they see. It's just like the, the guy you, that you know from your home group that used to go to six, seven meetings a week and now goes to one about every week or two. He doesn't understand that he's doing an impersonation of someone who's going to relapse. He doesn't see it because he's judging how he's doing by the way he feels and his life feels good right now. But that's never a good marker for us. That self-centered, self-obsessed, self-focused, self-absorbed guys like me have a tendency to want to judge how I'm doing by how I feel. And it's an erroneous thing. I have a sponsor who doesn't really care how I feel at all. I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, occasionally if he has the time and he's in a good mood, he'll listen a little bit. He'll turn on his uh-huh machine, uh-huh. But I'll tell you something, he's really concerned with what I do because that is the, that is a genuine benchmark, not how I feel. There were times, I'm not, not proud of this, but between about 11 years sober and about 16 years sober, I, I was making a lot of money. I mean, and I was dating a lot of women and I had a lot of fancy cars. And in that, as I'm building this house of cards based on self-gratification and self-grandizement, if you'd asked me before the wheels came off, Bob, how you doing? I said, oh man, I'm doing great. See my new Jack? Doing great. You'd ask my sponsor, he probably would have said, well, if he lives, he might help some people. <laughs> About 10 years ago, I went through a, a, a tough, tough divorce. I mean, I, like there's, a, there's not one that isn't, but it was tough. A lot of money was involved. A lot of emotions were involved. A, a, lot of, a lot of shame was involved that it was a failure, you know, and I put everything in this I could, and it was, and it was a I, I hated it. I hated going through that. And if you would have asked me as I was going through that, Bob, how you doing? And I was honest with you, I'd have probably said, I, I, I'm not doing that good. Man, I'm just hanging in here. I'm going to a lot of meetings. I'm hanging in there, but I'm scared, and I'm not feel, I don't feel very good. He'd ask my sponsor, and I, and I just, we've gone over this. He would have said, Bob's doing great. He calls me several times a week. He's making his commitments twice, two, three times a week at the detox. He's sponsoring all these guys. He's returning their calls. He's calling me on a regular basis. He's transparent. He would have judged how I was doing by what I was doing and not based on how I feel. Because it's erroneous. And yet self-centered people, self-obsessed people, we have a tendency to, that's what, that's, that's feelings is everything. Hey, we carry that into a lot of, a lot of areas. We carry it into work. Well, got a new job, Bob. What do you, what do you think of that job? Is it, is it, a, does it enhance your spiritual life? 
What? Makes me a lot of money. You know, it's a self, 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 self. We, you meet people, you meet a member of the opposite sex. You never stop to ask yourself, is this person an altruistic, principled, ethical person? No, it's how do they make you feel? I think we're all looking for a drink with two legs, right? It's, <laughs> right. <laughs> and Alcoholics Anonymous in our twelve in our twelfth tradition is 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 dynamic, and that the end result of the traditions in our lives and the steps in our lives is that we finally will do something we've never done before. We will put. spiritual principles before our own personalities. Because I I was sober 20 years probably before I understood what that that tradition meant. Here's what I thought it meant. Principles before personalities. I thought I had to put the principles of AA before your, let's face it, really screwed up personalities. Because I'm a noticer and I notice. uh, And I was 20 years sober before I understood there's only one personality. i got to put the principles before it's mine. I am the source and the seat of all my judgment and conflict. I'm the guy. I'm the, I'm the guy. And, and I was that guy before I ever got sober. Every time I get sober, I get worse in sobriety because I don't have any anesthetic. I got a bad ego problem. I don't know it, uh, but I, I fit the old adage: you can always tell an alcoholic. You just can't tell them much. I just sit in meetings and just judge everybody. I don't know I'm judging because I think I'm right, right? Uh, I, I had a psychiatrist, this guy named Abe Torsky, who's, who's a legend on the East Coast. He's work. He's the Doctor Silkworth of our age, I suppose. And, He's worked 50 years with us. And he cornered, I was in three treatment centers where he, he lectured and did, did classes. And I, the third one, he cornered me and he said something to me I, I've, I've thought about many, many times. I didn't get it when he said it to me. But he, what he said to me, says, he said, kid, guys like you don't get any better. He said, some of you will find a way to stay in abstinence for sometimes a decade or more, but you never get better. And he said, because even though you really truthfully have no self-esteem, you've grown this gigantic ego. And because of that, you cannot listen to anyone in order to hear anything new. You're only capable of listening to see how you are already right. Man, I I discounted that as he's just, he's stupid and everything. That tell you that was right on the money. Because I'm I sit in the meetings and every I remember this so clearly. I was there was a speaker came into this one rehab I was in. And I just usually just sit there and don't even listen. I just sit there and dream about me and my, you know. I I live in I live in Bob Bob land, you know. I just I think I had that ADD before it came out. I just, I just sit there. I don't pay attention because the, because the big show's on the inside, right? I just, I just live up in here. But this one speaker started saying a couple things. And at first he got my attention and then he started making me uncomfortable. And he started talking about stuff that was really hitting close to home. Here's what my ego did, how it works through your mind and the chatter. All of a sudden I was sitting there and it was, as I'm getting uncomfortable, my head went, Oh, that's the stupidest toupee I've ever seen. And with that, I could discount and throw out everything he was saying. 
I think that my ego is the most defended mechanism in the universe. That's why in our book it it talks about us being crushed by these self-imposed crises we cannot postpone or evade. And it's then, and only then, when I'm crushed, that I may possibly face the proposition that there might be a God, that God's either everything or he's nothing, he either is or he isn't, but not when I'm full of myself. You don't need God when you are God. And I didn't think I was God. If you, would have, you could have put me in a light section, Bob, you think you're God? Oh, absolutely not. It was said I was telling the truth. Yet I positioned myself in life as if I secretly or unconsciously thought I was God. My first sponsor used to hammer me about that stuff. Because I, I go to a lot of meetings. That's what kept me sober in the beginning before I worked the steps. And I'm, I, I notice things that are wrong with people easily. I, it's a gift. It's just a gift. I, I just I notice so, but I don't say anything. Ag- and I get aggravated by some of it. I used to go home from meetings having conversations with people in the car that aren't in the car because of what they, the stupid stuff they shared in the meeting. And I, but I don't tell my sponsor when I got one or two little aggravations because I'm, I think they're going to go away, right? I'm the kind of guy that will drive on a flat tire thinking it'll go away. But I think it'll go away. So I have to wait until I have a bushel full of it where I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. And then I go to him and I dump it all on the table and I, t- I start telling him about the people that they think phony, phony when they share and they lie, all that. God, you can hear angel wings flapping in the background. Just phony, phony, phony stuff. That sounds like a Hallmark card in a recovery bookstore. Just a bunch of, bunch of crap. Tell them about the, the people, guys, guys selling ammo in the parking lot outside the meeting, for God's sake. So-and-so, four cups of coffee during the meeting, didn't put any money in the basket because I'm watching. <laughs> oh, and the, and the one, oh, the 13th steppers. Oh, God, I hate those 13. We got to shoot them. You know what my sponsor said to me? He said, you're just jealous that they're getting more than you are, that's all. No, that's not it. It's the principle of the thing. You ever hear me say it's the principle of the thing? That should be over the door to hell. It's the principle of the thing. Uh, but I, I, I pile up all this stuff, and then he says the same thing to me. I bet you said, we had this conversation six times, and he always says the same thing. He says, you have to quit playing God. Now, I don't say nothing, but I think, I'm not playing God. I'm reporting accurate information here. <laughs> And I was as if I'd climbed up onto a throne of judgment, separate and above. I love that term that Bill uses in the, in the fourth step, in the 12 steps and 12 traditions, when he talks about a state of smug superiority, right? That's self-righteousness. You know what the problem with self-righteousness is? Self. You're feeding a dog that should be starved. And yet I don't know that. The book, the book says that. It says, one of the funniest lines in there, it says we are extreme examples of self-will run right, though we usually don't think so. It's not saying you got a little problem, Bob, with self-centeredness. It's saying, Bob, here's the worst of humanity. You're that guy way up there, Bob. You're the extreme example of it. Yet you don't think so, do you? And we all do the same thing. I, I bet you I've had this with 20 people I sponsor over the years. 
three to five years, three to seven years sober usually, they'll come to me and they'll say to me what I said to my sponsor at about three and a half years sober. I went to him and I said, Dick, I, I'm getting worse. He said, what do you mean you're getting worse? I said, I, I, I've never been this, I was never this self-centered before. And he started laughing. He said, yes, you are. You just didn't realize it until now. <laughs> and as the veil lifts, you start to see more and more about yourself. And you start to understand things that you never would have understood. And, and you understand them in these rooms. You introduced me to me. Isn't it odd that I spent all those years in therapy trying to study myself? And the more I tried to study myself, the more lost and confused I was. I didn't know who I was. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I'd hear plumbers and carpenters and, and automobile salesmen and, and housewives talking about themselves. And I found myself in your experience. As we, as I did the thing that we all do, when you sit there and the thing resonates with you. And we, you know, you, you, you may not like the truth, but you know it when you hear it. And I'd sit there and I'd be nodding my head. Going, yeah, that's me. And it's funny when you, when you get to that, when that happens to you, if you're like me, it's new, yet you've kind of known it all your life, but the veil hadn't lifted and you didn't really know it, yet you always knew it. It's a funny thing. It, they're telling you something that's been true your whole life, and yet you couldn't see it through your own eyes, studying yourself, no matter how intensely you looked at yourself, you couldn't see it. But I could see it through your eyes. And you, you, you introduced me to myself. And, and through inventories and, and through the steps, and, and more importantly, through sponsoring guys and helping them to do the steps and listening to their fifth steps, I really started to discover who I was. And what I was afraid of was that I was going to find out that who I really was was someone so horrid I was going to have to kill myself. And instead, I found some, I found that I was someone I really like. Not perfect, but I remember I was probably eight years, ten years sober. And I got to, it brought tears to my eyes. I, I, I was sitting at a big meeting and, and I was looking around and there were people there. There was a, there was a guy there that owned a casino. It was probably worth over a hundred million dollars. There was a, there was some really amazing people there. And I looked around and I thought, there's no, there's no one on this planet I would rather be than me. And it was as if I settled comfortably into who I was. Not perfect, but really okay. And it's beautiful. When I came, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I didn't believe in God. I, I, that's one of the things that offended me about, hey, all this God talk. There was a whole bunch of stuff that you guys did. It drove me crazy. I mean, first of all, the gratitude. Oh, the people are grateful for everything. Grateful, grateful, grateful. Oh, Jesus. I remember I was sitting in a halfway house. I burnt my life to the ground. I'm homeless. I'm staying there because I have nowhere else to go. Winter's coming on in Pennsylvania. It's really bad. I feel discouraged, disgusted with myself. And the parade of people from AA, from the outside, come in to tell me how wonderful their lives are. I remember sitting there thinking, this is hell. This is hell. This, I, it's bad enough that you ruined your life. You have to sit endlessly as other people rub your nose and how wonderful they are and you're not. 
right? Oh, I hated it. Grateful. Oh, and people in AA love everybody. Oh, they love, love, love. Do you ever be new? You hate yourself. You hate your life. You feel depressed, disgusted. Have somebody in AA come up to you and go, has anyone told you they love you today? <laughs> oh, I hate that. Because no matter what, you, you're going to get a hug no matter what you say. And I don't want anybody touching me, right? Don't touch me. Oh, man. And then the God thing was, oh, God, everything. God, God, God. Well, when I got here, I was an atheist. Well, sort of. I wasn't really an atheist. I've known some real atheists. You have to be very religious about your atheism to be a good atheist. I can't get that much angst about it. What I really am is I'm a guy who's afraid of God. I'm a guy, by nature, if I suspect that you don't like me, I'm going to not like you first. And I'm that way with God because I, from the time I was a little kid and they started telling, I went to Catholic school and they started telling me about God, I didn't hear everything because my mind, Wilson talks about this, he said, we're problem people. I, my mind, all it ever does is threat assessments. It just, all it does is see problems. It doesn't see, I don't see a God, I don't hear about a God of love because that's not a problem. But I heard about a God of judgment. I heard about sin and I heard about hell. I heard about a God who could see in the dark, which that's not good for a guy like me. A, a God that not only judges me for what the things I do wrong, he judges me for the things I just think about doing, right? Which, and I can't, st- I can't not think bad stuff. I can do it for, I, I can be good for a little bit, but then it's almost like I, I got, I got torque on my badness and I have to be bad for a while. I can, I outgood myself, I guess. I don't know what that's about. I can't, I can only be good for a little bit. I had this nun, I remember grade school, God, I was only a little kid. I'm trying to be good, for God's sakes. And she was a young nun. I think she probably was pretty. It's hard to tell with all that hardware on. But I think she was. I think she was pretty. And she used to say, "We must be pure of thought, word, and deed." I'm a little kid, just going, "Yes, sister." And then my mind imagines her naked. That sin's not even in the books. You can't go into that box in that church and tell that priest that he'll come out and beat the crap out of you. So it's another brick in the wall that I cower behind, knowing that my case is different. So when I get to Alcoholics Anonymous and you mention God, I just, ah, ah. But I'll tell you something, you drink enough whiskey, things happen to you if you don't die. 1977, I was, uh, I ended up in an emergency room. I hurt myself. I used to get, I'd go to emergency rooms a lot. This, sometimes I'd wreck cars. Other times I'd get in fights. I get in fights. About the time that I think I can beat anyone is about the time my coordination goes out, right? <laughs> you get really hurt like that. And, and so I, I get up in emergency rooms. This particular time, I, in a, I don't remember it actually, but I, in a, something, a rage or something, I put my fist through a, plate glass window and I couldn't stop bleeding and people were freaking out. They, some people took me to this emergency room. They put some stitches in me and then they had to give me x-rays to make sure that there wasn't any other damage done. And so I've been sitting in this emergency room, waiting room for, I don't know, two two hours or so, maybe longer. 
And I'm sobering up against my will because they don't have bars in emergency room waiting rooms. And if they ever needed one, one where somewhere, they need one there, but they don't have one there. So you're forced and you're kind of sobering up. So I'm sitting there waiting, just antsy. And there's this rack of medical pamphlets, you know, like diabetes, heart disease, that kind of stuff. I grabbed one of them. It said seven warning signs of cancer. I started reading this pamphlet. And one of the warning signs was intermittent, unexplained bleeding. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, you know, I dry heave sometimes. I Oh, it's rat, I ratchet. Oh, it's horrible. And blood comes out sometimes. I think, oh my God, I, I must have, I have cancer. And then I think, oh no, wait a minute, wait, there's been a couple instances I've been bleeding out of both ends. I got cancer. And then it was like a veil lifted and I had this clarity it's metastasized to my brain. That's why I do the weird things and can't remember them. That's why I go emotionally on these roller coaster rides. That's why I fly off the handle at people and yell at them for nothing. That's why nobody likes me. I can't, that's why I can't hold a job. I have a brain tumor. <laughs> oh my God. I just, I love the, I just, I just play with that fantasy. I knew that one day they're going to find out, they're going to take me to a cancer ward, and they're, I have to notify my mother and father who have nothing to do with me. They won't even take my calls because they think I'm a bum. And they're going to realize how wrong they were about me. And they're going to come rushing to the hospital to beg my forgiveness. Oh, Bob, we didn't know you had a brain tumor. And all my girl ex-girlfriends who thought I was a worthless bum, they're going to be notified. They're going to come running to the hospital properly ashamed of themselves. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, then I ended up in a detox. <laughs> I'm in this detox, and they're, they're doing my vitals and, you know, the heart, all that crap. This medical guy's doing all that. And I start talking about alcoholism. I start to say, doc, doc. I have a brain tumor. <laughs> and he looks at me like, weird. And he says, has that been verified? I said, well, yes, it has. It was verified by the smartest guy I know, me. Uh, and he got very excited. So he set me up for a whole series of tests. They shot dye in me. They put me in a tube. They did all this crazy stuff. Blood tests, all kinds of stuff. And I'm waiting for the results. So everybody's going to know how wrong they were and how right I was. My ego doesn't care if I'm dead as long as after I'm dead, everybody realizes how right Bob was. <laughs> and he calls me, they call me in. I'm waiting for the good news. And he says to me, he says, you know, we got your test back. You don't have a brain tumor. You don't have cancer at all. You have, you have a small ulcer and a small hemorrhoid. <laughs> I wanted a second opinion, right? It was like, I would rather be dead and right now, if you identify with that on any level, you do not have a high mental health quotient. <laughs> but that's, that's the grip. I'm in this bondage of self, and I don't even know it. It's got me, and it's killing me. It's not alcohol that's killing me. If it was alcohol that was killing me, then sobriety should have solved my problem. But I get sober again and again and again, and abstinence feels like I'm doing time, and I don't like, I can't weather it very well for very long. And I don't know that that's alcoholism. Why would I think that? Because I don't drink. But 
what I started to understand well into my sobriety, working with people, because I could see it in them before I could see it in me, it's not just that I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. I have an abnormal reaction to abstinence. And it drives me insane. So insane that you know the thing you knew was going to kill you and you swore to yourself you'd never touch it again? Abstinence will drive you so insane you'll go back to it. And I did time and time and time again. I came to in a park in 1978. I'd been sentenced two years in a state penitentiary by a judge who cut me a break and put me in a long-term treatment center. I was supposed to stay there a year. Well, I can't stay there a year because you got to be sober to stay there a year. I can't stay sober a year. And I started drinking again. And they threw me out. And I'm in the park. And I came to in the park. And I am so sick. And I can't get high. I, there's this, my drinking has become so pathetic. I drink in this horrid, horrid loneliness and depression. I always start a run with a, an excitement that I'm going to jumpstart to get back to those old days, and I never am able to do that. It's pathetic. And I come to in that park, and I remembered what that doctor had said when he gave me that physical. When, I was, when he was done, he said to me, he said, kid, you have alcoholism. And he said, you keep drinking, it's going to kill you. But you're a young guy. I was in my 20s. He said, you're a young guy. It, it's probably going to take five years. And I came to that morning and I thought, five years. And something inside me just snapped in despair and hopelessness. And I thought, I can't do five years of this. I can't do five more weeks of this. And I made the decision to kill myself. And I unconsciously and sometimes consciously had been trying to drink myself to death for a while. And I think a lot of us take that position. You know, it talks about that in the book, to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation. But the problem with drinking yourself to death, it takes a long, long time. It's like being kicked to death by rabbits. It just goes on <laughs> and on and that's why so many of us just start thinking about offing ourselves. I can't hang, man. It's just brutal. So I made up my mind to kill myself, and I went to this bridge, and, and a fear gripped me. And it was not the fear of dying. The fear was, I, as I looked down maybe 100 feet below these railroad tracks on the side of the river, the fear was that maybe it's not high enough. With my luck, I may not die. I may end up paralyzed from the neck down in some charity ward where no one will bring you a drink. And I'll lay there listening to my head replay every shameful, disgusting thing I've ever done for 50, I'll lay there 50 years like that. Members of Alcoholics Anonymous will parade their newcomers through the room and I'll get to hear them say things like, well, Bob's, what happens to you when you don't work our beautiful 12 steps? And I'm paralyzed. I can't even give him the one-finger salute. When drinking is horrible and not drinking is horrible and you can't even kill yourself, what the hell's left except Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> it's the last house on the block. So if you're new here and you don't like this, good. We didn't like it either. 
you got to understand that you're, you're in AA. It's like the mafia. Nobody gets out of here alive, man. You just got, you just better hunker down and find, work the steps. And I'll tell you something. If you work the steps, it'll change. And there'll come a day where you'll feel, it'll bring tears to your eyes that you'll be so grateful that you somehow, a bum like you, stumbled into a place called Alcoholics Anonymous. You guys introduced me to God. I didn't want, I didn't want to believe in God. He had me do crazy things. I don't, I don't want to do them. He wanted me to get down on my knees every morning and, and every night and pray. I told my sponsor, I said, I don't believe in God. He said, that's not the point. I want you to do that. And I said, well, if I prayed, I'd feel like a hypocrite. He said, you've been a hypocrite all your life. What's the difference? <laughs> we got room for another one in AA. Come on in. I mean, <laughs> just do it. And I just started doing it. And, and I started to develop a relationship through my actions in something that started to become real that I didn't even believe in. I didn't even believe in God. I just started taking the actions. And, it, and what happened? God started showing up. And I was starting to have an experience with God. Because I can't believe something because you say it's a certain way. I am not. I wish I could. I'm not wired that way. I had to have my own experience, and I started to have an experience with God. And over the years, I've even learned to trust Him because I've been, and I've had, found myself in, backed into corners in sobriety where I was scared to death. Two divorces, uh, success, which scared me, losses, which the uh, resentments. Went through one, one resentment. I, if a guy sponsored, matter of fact, he's going to pick me up at the airport when I fly back into Vegas, who, who'd had an affair with my, my wife in my 11th year of sobriety. And he's, he's one of my best friends today. But I'll tell you, there was a period there where I, I actually made an appointment to meet a hitman. Uh, <laughs> that's a true story. Uh, and what happens is the pain, when you get to that place it talks about in the book where you're crushed by these self-imposed crises in your sobriety that you can't postpone or evade, and there's nowhere else to go and nothing else to do. You had to fearlessly, we have to fearlessly face the proposition that maybe God's there. And what do I got to lose? I got to trust him. And I got forced into act, taking the actions of someone who hoped and wanted to trust God. And every time I positioned myself like that in life, God brought me through. Every time. Every time without fail. And I come out the other side and I know that I've been safe and protected. And I think for some of us, trust is like an un, it's like an unused atrophied muscle. And the more you use it, the stronger it gets. Until, I don't know, 25 years here, maybe 30. I don't know when, but I somewhere along the way, I started to really, really trust God and bank on him and know. And know that I have nothing to worry about. He's got my back. And he always has. And he always will. Wilson says that we're problem people. We seek problems. I think I have an ego that can't, that can't sustain itself without problems to play God about. What if what, what Chuck Chamberlain used to say, and I used to love to listen to Chuck, he, when he'd say things like, 
Your life's no longer your business. You don't have to worry about you. All you have to do is go help God's kids. God's got you already covered. You don't have to ask him for anything. He's already given it to you. You just don't know it. The gift is already given. You just don't know it. What if my life always was, is, and always will be perfect? And all the problems I've anguished over in my life, what if they never really existed? What if the only time they ever came to fruition is because I got there in there with self-will and I brought it to me like a self-fulfilling prophecy? What if my life is in perfect order and I just don't know it? I'll tell you this little story and I'm going to quit. I had a friend who's a pilot. And he told me a story, and I'm not a pilot. But he said that he was flying a, a high altitude in a small plane, and he got hit by a wind shear, which I guess is two opposing currents. And, it, and it, what it does is it can throw you into a tailspin. And he said it's, it's one of the most frightening things you'll ever experience. And he said every instinct in me was to pull back on that stick. And he said, I've been taught with this plane, if you do that, you will crash and die for sure. He said, what I had to do was contrary to everything I felt. I had to push it forward and let it snap back. And he said that those particular planes were made by their creator to right themselves. What if my life's like that? What if what Dr. Paul said was true when he said he was amazed how he'd go out and help people, and while he was helping people, his problems would die of neglect? What if this really is the Garden of Eden and I just have my head so far up my butt I can't see it? <laughs> if you're new, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe the real awakening here is you're going to awaken to the inheritance you've already received and you don't know where it is. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.